Hey everyone, this is Cameron from Renegade Animation on RenegadePopCulture.com. If you like what we do, please give us a like, a follow, and a rating on Apple Podcasts and anywhere you listen to podcasts. We are everywhere. That way we can keep talking about what we love, and that's talking about animation. And now, on with the show. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Renegade Animation on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. My name is Mike. I'll be your host for this evening. Joining me, as always, is the animation guru himself, Cameron. Howdy, howdy. And today we've got a pretty interesting episode. We've got reviews for Baymax on Disney+, Plus, Pause of Fury, The Legend of Hank, and from G-Kids, The Deer King. But first, there was this little get-together in California called San Diego Comic-Con, <laughs> and we've got some trailers and footage to discuss. So, Cameron, what do you got? Well, let's talk about one of the first trailers shown for the I Am Groot short series that will be premiering on Disney Plus, well, next month, showing everyone's favorite version of Groot, Baby Groot, on some small-time adventures with big, grand payoffs. Normally, we wouldn't talk about this, but it's technically an animated show. Technically. (laughs) Because it is an animated character and talking with other animated characters. So why not? It looks cute. I'm wondering what kind of stories are going to be told through these batch of shorts. I think the clip of the first one where where Groot encounters those little blue alien things is very cute. I love that there's like actual technology built within the rocks. I'm looking forward to it. Not much else to say. That's really about it for me when it comes to I Am Groot. I'm honestly surprised that Disney isn't doing more of like these little bite-sized adventures with these characters. One thing I used to love about the MCU in like the early years, like phase one and phase two, is they would have these things called Marvel one-shots where it would be, you know, a short little side quest for some of the supporting characters and they'd be like anywhere between 10 and 20 minutes we're just not seeing them anymore as the universe continues to expand now that we have disney plus we're getting you know tv series i really wish they would go back to those one shots and this seems like a kind of similar approach And because Groot is all CG, they can get away with basically making an animated series around him. The adventures that he will embark on sound like they'd be a lot of fun. So I'm all for this. Yeah, we'll have to see if they're going to say where this baby Groot or this incarnation of baby Groot is within the Marvel timeline. But I, I don't really care. (laughs) honestly same i'm just gonna laugh if they try to say like oh this takes place before guardians of the galaxy one it's like okay now we also got an exclusive clip for the upcoming beavis and butthead revival that's coming out next month also (laughs) on paramount plus where we got to see beavis talk to a demonic looking dumpster fire which Isn't that kind of like the whole existence of Beavis and Butthead? It's one large dumpster fire. (laughs) And it's very funny. It doesn't feel like it's trying too hard with trying to stay modern and hip, kind of like with the recent movie that we talked about. I love the gimmick of the fire telling Beavis to do good deeds instead of like causing the world to burn. (laughs) I loved seeing Beavis pick up the bottles and cans and then was about to put him in the trash bin and the fire got super upset about that. It's like, no, not in the regular trash bin, in the recycling bin. (laughs) It's a perfect like clip to show what kind of show Beavis and Butthead is. Oh yeah. Agreed. I love everything about this clip. I love the character design of, of the fire. I wish I knew who voiced this character he has one of those voices that you may not recognize immediately but you know you've heard him before that's another thing that i'm kind of looking forward to with the new beavis and butthead series is getting to 
looking to see what kind of stories they can tell in a modern setting. Like, this is one of those shows that I never thought they'd be able to bring back. It looks like the streaming era is probably the, the perfect climate to bring these characters back. Well, the audiences for shows like the Beavis and Butthead revival or Clone High are not going to be watching TV. They'll be on a streaming service. It makes sense for that to be the case. Because otherwise, I think Clone High and Beavis and Butthead would suffer on TV. And then we also got a sneak peek of the new Transformers series, Transformers Earth Spark which will have a cast including Sydney McAuliffe, who we would all know from Kipo in the Age of Wonder Beasts. She was a wolf. Oh. Uh, we have Zion Broadnax, Catherine Kavari, Zeno Robinson, Danny Putty, Benny Latham, John John Briones, Alan Tudyk, Rory McMahon, Sissy Jones, and Diedrich Bader, just to name a few of the voices that will be contributing to this new experience. Yes, it's using more CGI and such, but, you know, it looks stylish. It's got a painted look to everything and a mix of 2D visual effects. It looks fun to me. I'm going to be very curious to see how Alan Tudyk takes on the role as Optimus Prime. Not an easy role to fill, but I'm a fan of Tudyk's work, so I have faith that he will be up for the challenge. For you Owl House fans, it's got to be fun to see Zeno Robinson and Sissy Jones just continuing to crush it in the industry. Right. I'm, I'm so happy for them. I'm also very excited to hear Rory McCann as Megatron because I just realized it's like, oh, that's the Hound from Game of Thrones. So... He should have an absolutely intimidating voice for Megatron. Curious to see how they balance out having more human villains, especially with like Diedrich Bader's character, Mandroid. That's a fun name, Mandroid. Yeah, Yeah, it is. But it looks fun. I'm going to be curious and we'll be checking it out. And then we also got a clip for Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, which, man, we have to keep waiting for this one, but it looks so cool. The clip was... Very much a good impression on what we can expect. Love the comic book art style. It's very, uh, it reminds me of Kid Cosmic. So happy that we're getting more cartoons that are able to try out these different visual styles. Not that they already weren't, but I'm glad to see a Marvel property get a little weird with its visuals and how vibrant they are. It's like if they took the Spider-Verse DNA and made it 2D. I'm getting that vibe too. And it sounds like this might also kind of be a musical too. Everything I've been hearing about this series just gets me more and more excited, especially since Lawrence Fishburne is one of the series creators. He has a fun recurring role. He's playing the Beyonder. And in this version, he's a little bit more mischievous. I'm excited to see like how he handles uh, these characters. Right, right. And the voice cast is great because we have like Allison Bree, Andy Cohen, David Diggs, uh, Maya Hawk, Jennifer Hudson, Cliff Smith, Kobe Smulders, Wesley Snipes, Omid Abtahi, Utkarsh Ambukar, Michael Samino, India Moore, Craig Robinson. And then guests will include Gideon Adlin, Pamela Ad- Adlin, Anna Akana, Ian Alexander, May. Callumway, Wilson Cruz, Asia K. Dillon, Louise Guzman, Dr. Mae Jeminson, Josh Keaton, June Diane Raphael, Paul Shear, uh, Tajine Turner. And I like the expressive animation shown with the uh, just everything. It just looks good. I also love the like the robbers in the scene are, are just absolutely not taking uh, Moon Girl seriously. No, they're not. <laughs> yeah, they're just yeah, like, yeah, um, we're just going to go. Yeah. We're just going to go. Good luck, you know. But no, this one looks great. I wish it was coming out in 2022, but, you know, we already had to deal with the Owl House and Amphibia, so we can wait for the next great animated series for next year. I would rather they take their time and really get this one right. And then, of course, they showed off stills and images for the X-Men 97 series that's coming out, and 
I give them kudos that they are actually committing to going back to the original 90s animation style. I'm a little curious of how it's going to look in motion because as much as I liked the visual look of the animation style, it was not always the most fluid. Like the characters didn't move the best because it's like, wow, look at all these intensely detailed characters on a 90s animation budget. (laughs) So I'm wondering or like what kind of team is going to make this all work. And then of course we saw that new Spider-Man freshman year images and I love that they're going with all these comic book visual looks. It's quite refreshing because for a while they used that like second Avengers cartoon visual style for like everything. And after a bit it was kind of like, well, I was ready for it to like for them to try something different. And they did. And I'm glad. Also, Daredevil is in the series, which kind of extends to how happy I am that we're starting to see more of the Marvel characters from the Netflix shows kind of slowly inching their way back into the MCU, which is always a pleasant surprise. That was all the news from San Diego Comic-Con, all the Marvel news, all the DC news. And the fact that we're getting another Daredevil series, which is going to be nice. I liked the Netflix one, despite its huge limitations of being one of those Netflix Marvel series. But for now, I think it's time for us to talk about yet another victim of the not-traversy train of 2022. And what I mean by non-traversy, we're going to be talking about Baymax, the short series made for Disney+, Plus, which has our, well, everyone's favorite thing about Big Hero 6, going on daily adventures and, well, trying to help people in any way that he can. I really found these shorts to be charming. Same. There's only, what, like five of them? Six, and the last two are a parter. Like at first, Baymax helps out Cass run the, the coffee shop. And then we have him encounter a neighbor who he finds out that she's afraid of water and swimming. And so he goes out and helps her. And then Baymax shows up and helps a student going through her first period. Then we have him helping out a chef who realizes is allergic to fish and a cute little cat with a earbuds or one of those wireless earbuds stuck in his body. And then it all comes together with the last shorts. Just of all the people who Baymax helped now help him in a situation. And these were just really charming. It just reinforces why Baymax was the most well-received thing about Big Hero 6, because I know a lot of people would not consider Big Hero 6 the best of the 2010s Disney films. Honestly, I think Song of the Sea or The Tale of Princess Kaguya should have won Best Animated Feature that year. Yeah. But even with anyone who's just kind of like, well, it's just a generic Marvel action movie just made for families. What's so different and unique about it? Baymax is that key that makes it the reason why people still like Big Hero 6. And just how Baymax, not trying to be human or anything like that. He was just a robot who wanted to help people. And he went at it in a very robotic way. They didn't try to make him cartoony or anything. I mean, his whole design and how he moves and how he talks to people was already like one of the most charming things about that movie. And they translate that well in these shorts, especially when he goes downstairs to run the coffee shop. And he's just like, don't worry, Cass, everything will be okay." (laughs) And he's just like locked eyes with her while he walks down the stairs as he says that with the most cool and calm confidence of a serial killer which is kind of like the charm of baymax he doesn't have like a yelling or like other emotions he's just one level and that's it scott adsit does the voice for baymax and i think he has just the perfect cadence for this type of character he really only has like one mode but it somehow is always the right attitude for all of these people who are in need right and it was very cool to see them build upon the world of Big Hero 6. I don't know why it was such a whiplash inducing thing to see like other people in this world that wasn't just Cass, Hero, the Friends, and Baymax. Because the only other time they built upon the world was in that Disney Channel show 
like the animated series that had like a bunch of the Kim Possible people working on it. That's a pretty solid show. I definitely recommend it for people who may want to check it out. It was very mature how they handled some of these stories, like the one with Kiko and just how Kiko explains to Baymax her hesitation of going back in the water and or how Sophia is dealing with her period, which is unfortunately the one short that got everyone in a tiffy because how dare Disney acknowledge that periods exist twice this year apparently that apparently that's just too much heaven forbid and the fact that one of the people in in the store was representing transgendered this whole controversy is predictable stupid all of those words i think what i like about the series is there's a little bit of an educational aspect of it too kind of reminds me a little bit of some of the classic educational shorts that disney put out in like the 60s and a little bit of Bill Nye the Science Guy. In terms of like giving the audience a little bit of education while also entertaining at the same time. Right, right. It's also very touching. Like I think the third episode is my favorite still because of how they approach it. It's very calm. It's not demeaning. It's not condescending or it's not like, it seems like the creators were very careful with how they approached talking about a girl who might be going through their first period. Episode three and probably the two-parter are my two favorites. I think my two favorites are episode three, Sophia, and episode four, Mbita, who's voiced by Jabuki Young-White, who, shout out to Young-White because because he's had a very stellar year this year, or just like creative run not only with his live action stuff, but also in voice work. He's one of the main characters, Truman and Fairfax, which I think that show is still pretty solid on Amazon Prime. And he's also going to be Ethan Clad for Strange Worlds. I'm very much looking forward to that movie. I assume someone on a production team for episode four watches a lot of boy love because they have such a setup for what could be a boy love show on Disney Plus with Mbita and Yukio, who's voiced by Brian T. It's not forward, but it's there. You can kind of sense something was there. Oh, yeah. But otherwise, the voice cast is good. We have Ryan Potter returning as hero, Maya Rudolph as Cass, Emily Kuroda as Kiko, Lilimar Hernandez as Sophia. Ali is voiced by Zeno Robinson. We already talked about Mbita's voice actor and then Brian T. And then, of course, we have additional voices with Angel Parker, Brandon Scott, Carlos Ferro, Deacon Lachman, and Sarah Nicole Robles, a.k.a. Luz from The Owl House. It ends very nicely. It's a very self-contained pack of shorts. And the comedy is very charming. Baymax is just a walking pile of comedic potential. Oh, yeah. And, like, I'm not going to say the emotional, like, third act, per se, of these shorts was anything super gripping, but it was, like, nice that, like, one act of kindness helped all of these people out, and now they are using the kindness that they earned to go help and find Baymax. It's really just as simple as returning the favor. Just very sweet. Yeah, it's a very solid little series of shorts. And I hope they do more because Baymax could do so much in terms of like, they could use him to approach certain topics. Kind of like how some places used Inside Out to talk about emotional states like for kids and such to be like okay how are you feeling are you feeling like this character that character this one baymax has a lot of potential to do the same thing and i think that's very cool and i hope that they commit to more of these he could really be this generation ludwig von drake in terms of more edutainment content on the service yeah just in general because i don't know if they're ever going to make a sequel to big hero 6 i don't know what you would exactly do you would have to recast one of the main characters of that of the group right i could see it just making shorts to expand upon the world and such but really that's it go watch these shorts they're delightful very funny very educational very heartwarming it's got a lot of that charm that the team's working at Disney have. Let's talk about a film that's been in pretty much a decade worth of production hell. Let's talk about 
Blazing Samurai, or as it's now known as, Pause of Fury, The Legend of Hank. Let's just cut down to the chase. Let's do the too long, didn't read version of this, because there's just a little too much to really go over. Essentially, it was announced back in 2014. It was going to be made by Arc Productions. And then in 2016, the studio shut down. There were a lot of stories that the studio was not paying its animators. Then it kind of stayed in limbo for very much the longest of times because we didn't hear about this until what was it like 2020 when i said the film was getting put back into production i think it was like 2019 when an adventure joined the production i just remember we were doing the infinity train episode and then we talked about this news article that said like yeah blazing saddles is still happening and it's like okay it's like the new mutants of animated films i won't believe you until i see it so originally supposed to be released by Open Road Films, which they've had a few animated films under their belt before they shut down. Chris Bailey and Mark Coatsier were going to full-on direct it and such, and then unfortunately, Bailey left the project to work on Scooby-Doo and Guess Who, and Rob Minkoff, a famous Disney animation director who worked on stuff like Lion King, and among other things, The Forbidden Kingdom, Stuart Little. By the way, did you know Stuart Little, the first movie's script, was written by M. Night Shyamalan? That still gets me every time I hear it. <laughs> uh, it's amusing. And then it got picked up by Paramount for $10 million, which I know a lot of people are saying this film is dying in theaters. And yes, it is. But it's one of those like uh, cats don't dance kind of situations. It was bought, so it made all its money back. So any additional money it makes at in the theaters is just profit. Now, about the fact that this is playing in theaters as opposed to Rumble, which got sent straight to Paramount+, Plus. do you think this was some sort of grandfathered contractual obligation it had to get like a some sort of theatrical run well it's hard to know unless they absolutely say that's the case because that is going to be the thing for a lot of films that are kind of stuck in this production you inherit the production of the film but you still have to follow the legal soup that you are given and it will say this needs to play in a theater even though I know people were very much like already like, man, this film isn't going to work at all. Just because it's a child family friendly version, a loose adaptation of the 1970s Mel Brooks comedy classic Blazing Saddles. But I was hopeful for it, even though, yeah, I think putting this in theaters was always going to be a tough sell to any crowd. Even with this coming out after the Minions and right before the DC superheroes pets, because it could have maybe done well, but they didn't do a whole lot of marketing for this film, even like for press stuff. They really cover. only put like one trailer out in theaters and sure, a couple TV spots on like family networks like Disney Channel or whatever Nickelodeon other than that they really didn't much in PNA no they did not and it doesn't help that Paramount just doesn't have the most the best track record for animation as of recent years and such especially with stuff like Sherlock Gnomes and the third Spongebob film and that movie Wonder oh yeah Wonder Park which doesn't even have a credited director anymore no oh gosh the Horror stories about that whole fiasco. It was also just kind of like, how do you adapt not just a comedy, an extremely specific comedy for families? Because the entire point, as most people would know, who have seen Blazing Saddles, its entire point is to demystify the Western genre that was made popular back in the day because of stuff like, you know, John Wayne films and what have you. And its main target for its humor was it was making fun of racists and racism, just punching down on people who were actively racist. It was going to be interesting because Mel Brooks was fully on board with this as a producer, and they had to basically go off of that film to make it work. I know a lot of people were ready and willing to make this their next target for their hyperbole, rage-baity, clickbait articles to be like 
check out the world's worst movie of 2022 blazing yeah. samurai and it's just like <laughs> this is how i felt about the emoji movie that came out in 2017 like okay if you only count the big studio animated films yes pause of fury the legend of hank is the weakest of the bunch but y'all marmaduke came out this year and so many other films came out this year that are absolutely worse than pause of fury not to say that pause of fury is a good movie i don't think it's a good movie i think it's very mediocre to middle of the road but let's actually talk about a, a little bit about the plot to be clear it's not just blazing saddles which is kind of interesting because of how westerns cribbed from samurai films and now we're kind of going backwards with this movie cribbing off of the the western so if you are like one of those like people who are like really into like cultural aspects you won't like this movie it pretty much gets nothing right <laughs> of like the culture of samurais and what have you already that's strike one basically this villain is he a shogun or i kind of forgot basically this villain named ikachu a warmongering cat who's voiced by ricky gervais is trying to impress the Shogun, who is played by Mel Brooks. And the only thing that's getting in his way of making this huge, impressive castle is his small village that he wants out of there. He has tried a couple times and it doesn't work. So they're thinking like, let's get a samurai for him. And not only a samurai, a dog samurai, where we have our lead character, Hank, voiced by Michael Sarah. He was thrown in prison for crossing the border and two very uh, poignant guard cats were like, Hank asked, like, why do you hate dogs? And they're just like, well, my dad hated dogs. And that's that. It's not science or anything. It's just. It's just like tradition, basically. Yeah. Which is like one of those few moments where it's like, okay, they almost had something there. Like just nuance wise. Pikachu saves Hank from being executed and says like, okay, we'll send you to protect this small town that's getting overrun by bandits knowing that the small town will turn instantly against Hank because he's a dog and the whole village is full of cats. He gets there. He's not welcomed well by the town folk and encounters a reluctant ex-samurai or what it would be known as a ronin named Jimbo, voiced by Samuel Jackson. It is up to Hank to save this town, to stop Ikachu with the help of Jimbo, and become a hero to the people. So, Mike, what is the one thing that you think detracts from this whole experience? And I do not say this often. I don't think this movie should have been for kids. The only reason I say that is because Blazing Saddles is, A, honestly one of my favorite comedies of all time, and B, such a very specific comedy made in such a specific era to translate it into an animated movie for families means a lot of like the more iconic jokes just get lost in translation i was at the theater and there were only like a few other people there when they did the whole uh the new samurai is a dog joke i was snickering because if you've seen blazing saddles you know exactly which joke they translated with yep. the whole the sheriff is near moment. And it's funny to me because I know about the movie. But I could tell the kids and the families that were there were a touch like what? Because they just take a very loaded joke and then, well, for lack of a better term, neutered it just to be a dog. So it's weird. It's a very awkward vibe at points with this movie. Kind of brings me to another point I had was that a lot of the story, like the story beats are very mainstream family film cliches. And that kind of results in this like nebulous limbo state where the movie kind of takes the plot of Blazing Saddles and plays it straight for the characters, but it still tries to be in some places, irreverent and fourth wall breaking and all that. I really wish they either leaned hard in one direction or the other. The problem with this movie is that it tries to compromise and play it both ways. It wants to be a homage and remake of Blazing Saddles for a modern audience, but it's stuck having to play out like a more traditional 
family film. So you have jokes and gags that the kids aren't going to get. And then a story structure that adults are going to find unappealing or just not that interesting. Blazing Saddles was not a family film. So trying to turn that into something that's kid-friendly, you're just asking to fulfill a nigh-impossible order. And it doesn't really help that the voice cast, while full of talented people, aren't all on the same wavelength. It's a film that plays it way too serious at points when it's maybe should have just gone the SEAL team route and been hilarious and just full-on goofy. I think I agree with that. You really had to lean either all one way or all another. It's not like SEAL Team didn't have dramatic moments, but the energy was like pretty much always at an 11. The humor worked. Characters were all endearing. The animation was like super stylized. It was a perfect comedic animated film. I won't say it doesn't have its moments. Even in my review, I said like, I laughed more than I didn't. This isn't something I would like instantly recommend to anyone outside of like people who are curious and i think the worst thing about it is the opening sequence is just so awesome that once you see like the actual main character designs you're like ah yeah the visual designs are not all that impressive they're very safe there's nothing all that interesting about them And that's a real shame about that because the humor in this film tries very hard, whether it's adapting Blazing Saddles jokes or trying its own thing. They went hard on these jokes. There were plenty of times and moments where I was just having a blast. They weren't consistent laughs and it wasn't like, oh, I can go through this because I'm going to wait for the next joke. That's going to be great. No, it was not that kind of situation. But every once in a while, there was going to be a great laugh. And they opened with a really solid joke with the characters running into the title. And then they're just like, where the heck did that come from? And the character going to title department. <laughs> I think I laughed the most at all the, the fourth wall breaks. Those felt the most closest in spirit to the original Blazing Saddles. I just wish they were more consistent. They do a lot. They're... Like someone on the writing team was, or like the animation teams were going at it. I love the flashback gags, the film reel. Very much love the like, guns don't kill cats. Cars and curiosity kill cats. What are cars? You're getting curious now. (laughs) (laughs) Or like that scene at the very, or near the end where Sumo is trying to chase after the villains grabs onto a pole, swings around it, but his momentum is a little too much. So he swings <laughs> outward and he just crashes into a theater audience. Oh, that, you see a, that was really good. That probably got the biggest laugh out of my theater. And my theater wasn't full, but when that scene happened, everyone was having a, just a good, good laugh. I love like little details, like the mug gag with the whole like, how do they know I'm going to be a official samurai? And you just get like a world's best dad mug. <laughs> Samuel Jackson and Michael Sarah are doing their best. They're trying with this film. And so are like Mel Brooks and Gabriel Iglesias and Dimon Honsu, who plays a sumo cat who's supposed to be Mongo from Blazing Saddles. And I liked Michelle Yao, which <laughs> maybe it's just because I was expecting too much from her major role than like Shang Chi and then the amazingness that was everything everywhere all at once. And being the one of the few redeeming factors of Minions Arise of Gru. Her character does doesn't get a whole lot. She's just the mom character. But I did like her joke about like we made this home for our kittens and we want them to be here as long as we are and we want them to stay here where we're going to be inside a shoebox behind the garage. (laughs) Like there are so many little moments that are all throughout this movie that are like that. They just should have made it more consistent. Beginning from one great joke to another great joke is not great. And I think a lot of that is because, well, Ricky Gervais can't act or he was the wrong 
actor for this. I think he just cannot play a sniveling, pathetic, warmongering character. It needed someone else with a snappier attitude to bounce off of George Takei's more dim-wittedness. How about someone like Tony Hale? Yeah, it needed like a Tony Hale, or maybe someone not as recognizable as Tony Hale. But maybe like, uh, oh, who plays the Riddler in Harley Quinn? Jim Rash. Yeah, Jim Rash. Like someone like him, or maybe like an Alan Tudyk to kind of make it all work. Because otherwise, Gervais brings like the worst performance. I know some people may say Mel Brooks was the worst, but I'm not going to say Mel Brooks was the weakest part of his Mel Brooks project. Movie. And I like Damon Honsu as Sumo, even though the philosophical side never quite gives me a good enough laugh the action is pretty decent it's not the best animated action stuff of this year it's serviceable what's weird about like the whole production quality of this film i wouldn't call it a direct-to-video film as some people have labeled it on twitter it's in this weird spot of not direct-to-video but not quite theatrical quality i hate to say it's like a streaming service movie but i feel like a lot of more people would have watched this if this was put on paramount plus instead of the theater the fact that i had to go to a different theater to see this because at my local theater the day we're recording this there was only one showing at like nine o'clock at night so oof that's how you know this is like basically on its way out it's funny because i thought you meant nine in the morning at first that would have been just as bad at nine at night i was just like what is it trying to get those screenings like X got from a, you know, the A24 horror film? Because a lot of the ones X screenings at my theater were at like 11 o'clock at night. Who's going to go to pause of fury at nine o'clock at night? I mean, someone probably would have, I don't know. It's just the characters aren't all that interesting, even though I like Michael Sarah and Samuel Jackson's takes on Hank and Jimbo. There's just not a whole lot. I'm struggling to just kind of fine stuff to talk about with this movie yeah this is unfortunately one of those cases where the production and the behind the scenes tell a more interesting story than the narrative itself we could talk about the animation but we've basically talked about it it's fine it's what 45 million dollars on the screen and work among multiple different studios looks like they try to have a few stylish touches here and there like with the opening 2d animation hang flashback sequence Yeah, which was not as impressive. It's like they wanted that comic book style look, but they didn't want to go all the way with it. They So it acts more like a filter than an actual like approach like Puss in Boots, The Last Wish or The Mitchells versus The Machines or Spider-Verse. So it's just a lot of small, interesting tidbits here and there about it. And yeah, it's hard not to say who to recommend this to if you like mel brooks films and you want to check out everything that's adjacent to his work yeah if you want to watch this movie to see a lot of the really solid jokes or until someone on youtube makes a compilation video of it sure just wait for it on paramount plus family films are really competitive and it's really hard to say why you should watch this one over like the Sea Beast or like something like Seal Team. There's too much competition, which is a good thing that there's competition. But with this film easily heading out of theaters, who would you recommend this to? Honestly, the only people I would recommend this to are people who are either mildly curious about seeing the finished product of a film they've been following the production of for like years Or if you're a big fan of Blazing Saddles and just want to see how that story would translate for a family audience. Or if you're like one of those theatrically released movie completionists and just want to see all of the animated films coming out in theaters, you know, you do you. But I can only give this like the softest of recommendations. And the thing is, it's fine. It's not the worst movie of the year. Not by a long shot. No, it's a shame that it's going to be the new punching bag when it doesn't really deserve it. It came out, it was a sort of bad idea, 
to make a family-friendly version of Blazing Saddles. They went for it. They tried their best to make it work. And every person in a production of making a film are trying. They're not just doing it for the paycheck. They're not trying to just be like, ah, well, I don't want to work on this, but I'm getting money for it. Check it out if you want. There's definitely a lot more interesting stuff coming out or is already out that is worth your time. Like our last movie, which is The Deer King which was released in Japan earlier this year, back in February, finally hit stateside a couple weeks ago. And this is based on a novel series written by Nahoko Uahashi. And Cameron, why don't you describe the plot for this one? Okay, so this is the directorial debut of Masashi Ando, who was a Ghibli animator who also worked on stuff like the critically acclaimed Your Name and Satoshi Kon's last film, Paprika. It's also directed by... Masayuki Miyagi. It's written by Taku Kishimoto and produced by Production IG, who the marketing would like to remind you made Ghost in the Shell. It takes place in a fantasy world and it's being torn apart by war from two factioning countries. And one of those countries is using this cursed plague to wipe out the others for you know, getting into wars with them. Our main character is a man named Van, who is dubbed in the English version by Ray Chase. He's a slave working in a salt mine of the nation that took over. And during that time, a plague that is made by a mass of wolves attacks the mine, kills mostly everyone there outside of one young girl who's named Yuna, voiced by Luciana Vandette. Van and Yuna survive and make it out of there. While trying to find a new lease on life of trying to get out from not having to deal with the war that's going on, while a traveling doctor priest named Hossel, who's dubbed by Griffin Poitou, is looking for a cure and just figuring out what exactly is going on and why this plague is attacking a certain group of people and the political turmoil that is erupting because of the plague and the war. Before we get started, let me just say this. Do not go into watching this movie thinking it's a Princess Mononoke clone. That's been one of the most reoccurring things that has been happening with this one movie that everyone cannot stop doing is comparing it to the Miyazaki classic, Princess Mononoke. If you're wondering if they're the same movie that... The Deer King is just a ripoff of the other. No, absolutely not. There's a very big list of differences towards what makes the Deer King and Princess Mononoke different. For one, basically cook it down to its base essentials. Princess Mononoke is about the the conflicting balance of humans and nature, progress and finding a balance for it all. The Deer King is more about humans versus human nature. Like, why are people fighting? Why is this plague going after a certain group of people? Why did the king of the one kingdom say, no, I am not going to have my blood tainted by some commoner and then dies from the plague? It's a movie that definitely wasn't meant to coincide with the pandemic. Because, you know, animation takes forever to make, especially feature film animation. This was coming out and was then had to basically line up with some of the things going on in the world right now. So it's very easy to see this film definitely being pro-vaccination and pro-medicine and science and such, which is good. You want to be that because they are very clear with the king and the king's advisor saying, We will let the Lord seal his fate. And then like 15 minutes later, the king dies. (laughs) So it's definitely uh, saying screw you to a certain group of people. But the movie is also not about Van deal with a curse and save humanity and such. There's no forest spirit stuff or in the general sense of what you encounter in Princess Mononoke. His motivations are more personal. Van's arc is more about feeling and letting go of grief and guilt that has built up within him from losing his wife and son 
to the plague and war to making sure Yuna has a good life. Like no war, no violence, just a peaceful life at like this small village that they encounter. And it's a very personal and intimate story for its grand scale marketing and visuals. It's a very human story. And I like that about the film. It's not, I think it's kind of interesting that the marketing makes it sound like it's so much more epic in scale and such when it's not. I mean, it's big, but it's not grandiose. I get that. At the very least, there are certain scenes that feel grandiose just because of the way it's animated and just all the colors popping, especially those scenes when you see like the night sky. That was just gorgeous. Yeah, this is a very pretty looking movie. I mean, it's production IG when they put their resources into it when making a movie, they put out some fantastic top tier work. And yes, a Studio Ghibli veteran is working on this film. So of course the humans have a very Ghibli-like design to how they look, how they move, how things squash and stretch and follow the principles of animation. But I was never bothered by that Me neither. Um, aspect because it still feels like Ando's own thing with what he's doing and what kind of story he was telling. And plus at this point, everyone has put a little bit of Ghibli in their films or shows and what have you from around the world. It's not a major criticism. Anymore. Just generally speaking, people tend to draw from their own experiences. Like, right. you know, a lot of Don Bluth's early films drew heavily from Disney because, you know, that's where he came from. Even Miyazaki himself has admitted that Disney's a, like a major influence on his like visual aesthetic. Everyone is kind of influenced by everyone. Right, exactly. And there are action set pieces in this film, but I wouldn't call it an action film. It's more of an adventure drama, per se, because the journey throughout this film is, of course, Van trying to reignite his passion for life and find a new meaning behind it. And then he encounters the doctor priest in a bounty hunter who was sent to track van like i liked her i thought she was very good and there are like more moments and scenes and set pieces that's about expanding upon the world or being very visually splendid atmospheric like to set a tone like there's this one scene where the three of them encounter those characters that were on stilts they are saying like wait we're on your side why are you attacking us and it just goes into saying, like, when people are afraid, they won't think through their actions. And there's not a real villain except for the source of the wolf plague. And even then, it's more the source of the wolf plague is basically human hatred. Basically, because, yeah. Because they were willing to slaughter an entire nation for revenge when that wasn't going to solve anything. Like, it's a very much, like, find peace and balance within the world. Would you sort of consider this an anti-war film or is that just maybe one part of like a larger tapestry oh i think it's an anti-war film because the war stuff takes more of a back seat it has a focus throughout the movie but it's never the main focus it's just characters trying to play checkers or chess with one another trying to make sure they stay in power by the end of it because there's this whole thing about like the emperor is coming through like that big blimp like thing. And at the end of it, you don't see him. You don't see the emperor, but that's pretty much the point. The anti-war stuff is there, but some of the characters are there just for thematic and like the most minor of story purposes. The family that Yuna and Van encounter in that. Yeah, like that. I mean, they're there just to be like, hey, Van, not everyone sucks. <laughs> except that little kid who was like um, the worst <laughs> what was he doing like throwing like he was throwing pebbles? like yeah pebbles at van and uh yuna and then the dad was just like okay come on man <laughs> but it was very cute seeing uh yuna hug the boy and the boy's just kind of like shell shocked like whoa okay <laughs> like i said it has a little bit of the ghibli touches but mostly of just like small character details. And I liked the big knight guy that traveled with the uh, doctor priest. He was a lot of fun. They gave him a lot of great expressions with just his eyes, which I really enjoyed. That's very much a Ghibli kind of thing. Like instead of just being like loud and such, 
a lot of these the character moments are told within the visual representation of how they move and how they react to different things. Another thing I like about it also is that it's two hours. Like we have another two hour animated film. And while I think it's pacing could be a little clunky at moments, it still felt pretty good. Like it flowed pretty well, like maybe just a hiccup here and there, but I didn't mind it being two hours. It's mostly just in like, like the first half where it feels a bit episodic in places. By the second half, it all really like comes together and the actual climax is very thrilling. So let's get into some spoiler territories here. So you find out the source of the plague is this one village. The plague finds a human host to call its own, to lead the wolves and such. And anybody that tries to that's not worthy dies because they get infected by the plague and Or the source of the plague takes interest in Yuna and Van. And Van is just like, I'm not going to let you control my destiny, which is another theme going throughout the movie of what is Van's path to life now. They take control of Yuna and Yuna leads the pack with this other gnarly bounty hunter general who pseudo takes control of the wolves also and then dies because of just you know human nature and such yep wanting to die a proud violent death and then gets arrowed a ton (laughs) and it turns out that like van's goal is to like he wants to make sure yuna is okay not to live this life of the wolf plague stuff and takes control of the wolves and like cures them from being this, this representation of anger and rage basically journeys across the countryside without Yuna. And it's very touching. I've seen the sub and the dub version of this movie and they have great actors for both sides. I wish I could have caught it a screening of the dub because looking at the cast, they picked some great actors for these roles. Yeah, no, uh, you have like Ray Chase, Griffin Boatu, Erica Schroeder, Luciana Vandette, Doug Stone, Neil Kaplan, Frank Todoro, Keith Silverstein, who I think plays the big knight guy that follows the doctor priest around. Louise Bermudez, Chris Hackney, Doug Erhold, Sander Mobis, and there's just so much more. Like Stephanie Shea shows up at one point also. For the Japanese cast, you have like Shinichi Tsutsumi, Ryoma Takeuchi, and An Watanabe. And the music is great i was about to say john williams no i meant <laughs> joe hisaishi who would have been a pretty good fit because he's done non-ghibli stuff before but it's handled by harumi fuki who i know it doesn't sound like the biggest or most well-known composer but you have definitely seen their work or heard it they've composed music for films and shows like miss hokusai the wonderland forest of piano and Surune which is that uh, archery anime that's on High Dive. That's a really good show. I very much enjoyed the first few episodes I watched of that one. And since it's Keo Annie, it looks gorgeous. I really like this movie. It's definitely up there with as like one of the better films and as one of the best animated films of the year. I think I prefer The Sea Beast a little more, but you could pretty much catch me on a certain day and i'll probably say why the deer king is better on some days or say the sea beast is better on others the deer king sits like just outside my top 10 of the year but i think the more i think about it the more i think about it the more i just really have just like fallen in love with pretty much everything about it from the animation to the characters the music is just everything about this even like the depiction of the plague still is presented beautifully it's weird to describe a plague as beautiful but it's just the way animated it's kind of like how water is animated the movement and all that is just so fluid right right it's got a very ghibli touch to it and once we get to princess mononoke when we can actually find some time to finish and watch the ghibli movies you'll see a lot of those touches from Mononoke in here and such. But yeah, if you can still find a theater that will be playing it, unfortunately, it seems like G-Kids are pretty much going the Fathom events route for most of their films, which is a shame because this one has a lot more widespread appeal than some of the other films that they put out sometimes. Like, it's interesting that they'll give Bell the full theatrical run of thousand or more theaters but unfortunately stuff like the deer king 
gets like 500 theaters or something like that. You better see it on like one or two nights or else you won't be able to catch it until it hits Blu-ray, maybe like in September. That sounds about right. I would love to be like a fly in the wall during these meetings when they're deciding how much money to spend giving each of these films, either like a wide release or just like very limited screenings because if they want more people to like to see these movies then it's going to cost a bit to put these in more screens i would recommend they do so because most of their movies have been excellent the films that they pick out are usually really good and i understand like why they do it for like a night during certain release windows like when you're going against like some big award season stuff you're going to struggle but it's just interesting of how they decide to make it run like the distribution game run in their favor because how many people are able to see these fathom events and fathom events don't always go to like every city and such so you have to pretty much live in an area where you'll be able to and i'm fortunate enough to live in one of those cities that gets most if not all the fathom events and that's in austin and it would probably be better to do like new york or california in some whatever reasons i see what you're saying like fathom events needs to be wider release strategies and to not just be for like one or two days anime films are making money now i know it's usually with the big franchise films But Bell was able to make $3 million at the box office. That is super impressive. And Jujutsu Kaisen has made like a whole ton of money. Demon Slayer made a stupid amount of money. And the upcoming Dragon Ball Super film is probably going to rake in so much money. People want to see these films. It's tough when not everyone is able to afford or is able to see them. Like to schedule it out and such. Sometimes I have to be very hopeful that nothing comes up and i can just go see the movie but it's tough (laughs) go see the deer king if you can if you need to wait until it hits on demand then that's perfectly okay just as long as you see it somehow for my recommendation i am going to once again do another anime recommendation because i finally got through all of the new non-sequel or spin-off adjacent anime so this is like you know all the quote-unquote new and original you know just it's not a second season of something that already exists i'm going to recommend the one netflix anime this season you think with all the money netflix likes to say they don't have but then have they acquired uncle from another world which I don't think it was originally supposed to be a Netflix title, but then it got picked up for distribution by Netflix. And alongside Parallel World Pharmacy, we actually have a very different kind of Isekai anime. Consider it a post-Isekai Isekai anime because it's about a nephew who goes to see his uncle who finally comes out of a 17 year long coma from 2000 to 2017 he talks to his nephew and says like oh yeah i was in another fantasy world and somehow he brought the powers back with him you would think like huh this is a weird setup for an izakai and then you watch it and again this is just a first episode impression things can absolutely change when the second and third episode hit, I was having a great time with this one. The laughs were constant. The creativity and the angle that they took with the main, the uncle character was constantly and consistently entertaining. There's a really good gag where because he was in a coma for such a long time, the first thing he asks his nephew is, who's winning the console race? Is it Nintendo or Sega? And now he's just like, and nephew's like, well, it's now pretty much Sony and Nintendo. And no, they don't say like Microsoft because in regards of the Japanese gaming scene, Sony and Nintendo basically are the big competitors in Japan. Microsoft, good luck finding them in there. I think that's one of the only American-based video game developers. Yeah, it is. Or like one of the biggest ones. And uh, the uncle asks, like, what happened to Sega? And the nephew's like, I don't know if you want to know. Like, what happened to Sega? 
Well, they stopped making consoles for a long time now and are a third-party distributor. And it just breaks the uncle's heart. And then as they're going through the uncle's memories, and I think this is my favorite gag, I will spoil it, but I want people to watch this show as much as possible because it's one of the better shows of the season. So the uncle talks about this elf character that he encounters. And from his perspective, she is the one who constantly follows him around back in the fantasy world and harasses him, only for the nephew to find out that the elf girl was a tsundere stereotype, you know, the very, like, begrudgingly stubborn, like, I have feelings for you, and, like, I have affection for you, but I'm kind of angry and grumpy, and I'm not really going to show you. So the nephew is just like, oh, no. <laughs> because the uncle was like oh yeah i soloed that whole world by myself and the son is just like oh man my uncle went into a coma in 2000 the sundere archetype became really popular in 2004 <laughs> so the uncle doesn't know anything there's a bit of a, a culture shock element to this oh yeah absolutely and I'm really curious to see how the rest unfolds because I'm really hoping it doesn't go into any nonsense of fantasy power Isekai nonsense because we already have so many of those this season. Oh my God. Isekai authors, stop it. Take a break. Write a different story. You don't need to make more Isekais. There should be a fine for Isekai authors who don't do anything new or interesting with their worlds in writing. Because for me, Parallel World Pharmacy and Uncle from Another World are great examples of how to play with the Isekai sandbox. This genre has been around long enough that there's really no more excuse for like a lack of innovation. Even like superhero stories have been around since at the very least, the 30s. And even that has like undergone plenty of evolution. Right. You can play around and have fun with it. I mean, granted, I know some people are going to be like, well, what can you do with it? Like that already hasn't been done. And it's just like Uncle from Another World shows you that, hey, there's still some undiscovered territory. When has there ever been an Isekai where the Isekai aspect is in the background aspect. It's the character returning from the Isekai world. I think that's a great setup. But yeah, that's my recommendation. This is probably the one I'm looking forward to the most, at least out of the glut of Isekai that we have to suffer through. My recommendation is another nostalgia poll, but one that's completely random. I was going back and watching episodes of The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, I'm not even sure why. I guess I just needed some comfort food. And I don't know when the last time like you watched this show was, but this honestly just holds up a lot better than I remember. It still kind of stays true to, you know, the characters, Pooh, Tigger, Piglet, etc. But there's just something, something so endearing about all of their adventures. And the specific episodes I went back to were... The two featuring the bird, Kessie, that rabbit befriends. The other one was, I don't know if, if you remember the Heffalump and Woozle characters. Yeah, I remember that one. That one is one of my favorites. I wish the show had more characters like that, more one-off antagonists. I'm kind of glad I went back to watch this. I used to watch the show like all the time growing up on Disney Channel and Toon Disney. This was like kind of laying the foundation of my adoration for the medium it's nice to kind of go back to the hundred acre woods every once in a while i haven't seen that show in ages i think the last time i watched it was it was like this episode where piglet and eeyore like the ending of it has them like on a hilltop looking at the stars that's a good one yeah it's very ethereal it's like this is Winnie the Pooh. And then I see a bunch of the characters running and it's just like, wait a minute. And I looked up and it's like, oh, hey, TMS worked on this and they did, uh, you know, Lupin the Third. Sometimes the characters run very much like Lupin the Third. It's just how they roll. (laughs) My all-time favorite episode is called Pooh Skies. This is the one where Pooh thinks he broke the sky. And so what happens is Pooh and Gopher have to like pretty much fix the cloud machine 
what happens is you just get some very creative imagery with like the clouds as like this big roaring river and they all have like really cool designs like one is like a pirate ship one's a dragon right it's a lot of fun i just really adored the show all righty awesome and well that wraps up this episode next time we'll be talking about the rise of the tmnt franchise and we'll be looking at the show and the movie i'm very much looking forward to that one but until next time cameron where can everyone find you online you can find me on twitter at cam's eye view I run my own website called camsiview.biz. It's where I review animated films and shows from around the world called The Other Side of Animation. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash camsiview, and that's where you can find me. And you guys can find me on Twitter at CaptainK42. You can check out my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash CoachK42. And you can find me in all the various Facebook groups just at my name. You can check out Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and Twitter at RenPopCulture. We're also on YouTube, Podchaser, the Banana Meter. Listen to all of our podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. And last but not least, everything can be found at renegadepopculture.com. Need an escape? So do we. That'll do it for this episode of Renegade Animation. We will catch you guys later. Peace out. <laughs>